hey, welcome to First Church. If you're new, my name's Chad. We're so glad that you're joining us today for worship. And I don't know about you guys, but there's no place I'd rather be right now than right here with our church family worshiping our God. And so it's good to see all you guys here in person as well as those who are watching online. If you are here in person, if you would put your hands together, welcome in our online family here today. It's awesome that you're joining us. And I just want to see by a show of hands as we get started, how many of you guys have something around your house that needs to be fixed, but you've put off fixing it? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay, a ton of hands. All right, I'm not the only one. Okay. When we first moved into our house here in Owasso three years ago, uh, Allison was trying to change some bulbs in a ceiling fan in my son Alex's room. And when she took off the globe to the ceiling fan, she broke it. It actually shattered. And so Alex was in the room with her, and he ran to tell me what happened. And he said, hey, guess what mommy did? Guess what mommy did? You know, kids love to tattle on you. So he ran and said, guess what mommy did? And I walked into his bedroom, and this is what I saw as I looked up at the fan. You can see it's missing the globe here, which she shattered, and it broke. And she was upset because, you know, it's our new house we just moved into and all that stuff. And I was like, it's okay. It's no big deal. We'll get another globe. You know, it's fine. And so I tried to calm her down. And so that's what our fan, our Alex's fan, looked like three years ago. You know what it looks like today? Just like that. That's exactly what you would see if you walked in to Alex's room right now because I still haven't fixed it. And here's the thing. Three years ago, they were still making this fan so I could order parts for it, and I could have ordered that globe. It would have cost me like $50, $60, but they've now stopped making it, and if I were to want to fix it, I'd have to replace the entire fan, so it would cost me a couple hundred dollars to fix it, and I've really messed up by not doing it sooner, and so today you walk in Alex's room, it still looks like that, and here's the thing. You know, the first week or two, you know, I would walk in his room, and I would notice it, but after a while... I just stopped noticing it. It just became normal. It was part of his room, so to say. And I would forget about it until we would have company come over. You know, people would come visit. I would think, oh, I need to fix that fan. That's embarrassing. I need to fix that. But then company would come. I still wouldn't fix it, and it still looks like this. And, you know, my life sometimes, and probably your life as well, is a lot like Alex's ceiling fan. See, the longer, the longer that I ignore my brokenness, the more desensitized I become to it. The longer I ignore the broken pieces of my life and act like they're not a big deal, the more accustomed I become to them, the more they just feel like normal. And unfortunately, when we find ourselves in that spot, we miss what God wants to do in our lives in order to restore us, fix us, and heal us. And that was the case for the nation of Israel in the year 586 B.C. and the years leading up to that. So in the year 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem, known as the city of God, the capital city of God's people, was destroyed. And they were in sad, sad shape. But it hadn't always been like that. At one point, Jerusalem, it was the envy of the world. I mean, their leadership was godly. The people were faithful. Their economy was prosperous. They had strong, fortified walls. And the temple of God stood there as a witness to the nations of God's presence among the Israelites. At one time, Jerusalem was a mighty, powerful city. But with all that success and prosperity and power also came some arrogance and some selfish pride. 
And over time, people started to focus on themselves rather than on God. They started to do things their way, live life the way they wanted to live it, and they forgot about God. And they started going in the wrong direction. So God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people, you guys are headed down the road of destruction, the road to destruction. You guys are going down a path you don't want to take. It's going to be bad if you don't start to own your brokenness, own your sin. And there were occasions when the people repented, but for the most part, they didn't. They just kept doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes to the point that their brokenness just started to become their way of life. In fact, one prophet says this about the nation of Israel. It says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. They're not even embarrassed of their sin anymore. One translation says they have forgotten how to blush, as if they've been totally desensitized to their sin. It's not even a big deal to them anymore. It's just their normal way of life. And whenever we find ourselves in that situation, that spot, we're headed for trouble because we start to think that our sin The broken pieces of our lives, it's no big deal. We can live with them. We can tolerate them. We can go on and we'll still be fine if we don't own our brokenness and turn over to God. But the Bible says otherwise. In fact, in Proverbs 29, verse 18, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, that's a very famous verse. You've probably heard that before. I've read this verse quoted in secular leadership and business books. And a lot of times when people read this passage or quote this passage, what they're saying is, what they think it means is where there is no strategic plan or where there's no vision statement or mission statement, you know, a company will fall or a corporation won't be able to be successful or something like that. But that's not exactly what this verse means. That word vision in Hebrew actually means divine revelation divine guidance, divine communication. What this proverb is really saying is that there is no revelation from God. When people stop listening to him, when people start seeing things through their own eyes rather than through God's eyes, when people stop paying attention to God, the people perish. That's why I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. Have you been there before? I have. I've been there more times than I would like to admit. And that was the state of the Israelites during this period that we're talking about. They had forgotten how to blush. They weren't embarrassed of their sin anymore. They had no shame whatsoever. And so God warned them and he warned them and he warned them and they wouldn't listen to God. And so finally God gives them over to the consequences of their choices, to the consequences of their sin. And in the year 586, 586 years prior to the birth of Jesus, God allowed for a foreign king, the king of the Babylonians, his name, Nebuchadnezzar, to come in and sack the city of Jerusalem, destroy it. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a fun name to say. It was pointed out to me this past summer when I talked about Nebuchadnezzar for the book of Daniel that the name Chad is in the middle of it. And so I made it in the Bible. Now it's in the middle of this evil, wicked man's name, but still, I made it in the Bible. I'm there, okay. But Nebuchadnezzar, he was an evil, wicked dude. And when I say he sacked Jerusalem, he sacked Jerusalem. He destroyed it. He burned it. He came and he killed innocent people. He took the most prominent and gifted and talented people back with him to Babylon as slaves, as captives. The temple ends up being destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem are reduced to rubble. They're 
knocked down. And here's the thing. In this day and age, for the walls of a city to fall, that was a big deal. Because the walls of a city in the ancient world, that was their protection. If your walls are gone, then you can't rebuild anything because you're exposed. And so if you lived in a city without walls, it was a dangerous place to be. But not only that, walls also represented the might and the strength of a city. See, a city without walls wasn't just dangerous. A city without walls was also a disgrace, an embarrassment. And that's the situation that the city of Jerusalem finds itself in. And Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the walls. He destroyed the city in such a way that he would kill all hope of it ever being rebuilt. I've mentioned before that my kids, they like to collect the cups from Hideaway Pizza. I don't know if you do or not as a family. And we save some to drink out of. It's our Oklahoma China. You know, we save some to drink out of. But then also we have some that the kids play with. And they'll build pyramids and towers and houses and all sorts of stuff out of these cups. And Alex especially, he loves to get these cups out. And he'll try to build a tower that reaches up to the, to the ceiling, almost to the sky. Not quite to the sky, but to the ceiling. And he loves to play with these in our kitchen, in our living room. And as soon as he he gets something built that he's proud of he'll stand back and he'll look at his creation he'll look at his structure and about that time his sister Addie will come along and she'll do this almost every single time she'll knock it down and he gets all upset and he gets all mad so we got to tell Addie don't do that but then I look at Alex I'm like Alex buddy it's just a bunch of cups. You can build it again. It's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, it'll take you a few more minutes, but you can build it right back. You still have all the pieces that you need. You can build it right back, and so he does. But what if somebody was a lot more evil and wicked and mean than Addie? <laughs> and they came along and not only knocked down Alex's creation, but they also took a flame to it, and they melted down the cups, or they had some really heavy-duty scissors. They cut the cups up into little pieces, and then they handed Alex the melted and the cut up pieces of cups and said, here, build your pyramid now. Alice would probably look back at them and say, it's impossible. I can't do it. It'll never be what it once was. And that's how the people of Jerusalem feel. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed their city in such a way they lost all hope of it ever being rebuilt. It was, it was so destroyed that 141 years later, 141 years after it was sacked. This is what the Bible says about the walls of Jerusalem. It says that a donkey couldn't get through the rubble. 141 years, the rubble was still piled up. That's how bad things were 141 years later. And so over time, if anybody did think, maybe one day Jerusalem will be restored after decades and decades and decades of it just being piles of rubble and debris, they stopped dreaming that Jerusalem would ever be anything more. That is, until we meet this man named Nehemiah. We meet him, like I said, 141 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. And Nehemiah, he's actually serving in the Persian Empire because God allowed for the Persians to overtake to defeat the Babylonians. And so now, Nebuchadnezzar and his people, they've been defeated. The Persians are ruling the world. And Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I'm sorry, and Nehemiah was alive during the reign of Artaxerxes I, who was king or emperor of the Persians. And Artaxerxes, he was a lot kinder. He was more nice to the Jews than other rulers had been in the past. Now, he 
he still wanted control of the Jews. He still wanted them under his thumb, and they were still technically his slaves, but he was a lot nicer to them. And he allowed for some of the Jews to go back to their homeland and live there again, those who had been taken into captivity. And he also allowed for some of the Jews to hold prominent positions in his kingdom, one of those being Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah was a Jew from birth, but he had never lived in the city of Jerusalem. His ancestors, his family, they had been taken as captives 140 years ago. And so he's lived his entire life in the capital city of Persia, 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And so over time, Nehemiah, he wins the favor of the king, and he gets promoted, and he gets to serve as the cupbearer to the king. Now, that may not sound like that important of a role, cupbearer to the king. It may sound like a waiter job or something, but it actually was a pretty big deal. In this day and age, a cupbearer to a king was a loyal friend to the king. It was one of the king's closest companions because, you see, this was a trusted position. Your job was to taste test all the food, all the food and the drink that a, cu- that a king might be served. Because in this day and age, people tried to poison kings. And so you tasted all of the king's food and drinks to make sure it was okay. It was a pretty sweet gig, actually. I mean, you got to eat all this nice food, and, and you got to drink what the king would drink, and you got to live in the palace, and you got to spend one-on-one time with the king every single day. You actually kind of became a member of his family, and you didn't stay in that position unless the king liked you and trusted you and considered you a friend. And so Nehemiah, he's living in the king's palace. He's got influence. He's got authority. He's got the king's ear on a daily basis. And yet, even though he's this great friend to the most powerful man on the face of the planet at this time, he feels the nudge of God to dream bigger dreams. One day, some people from Jerusalem come and visit the capital city of Persia. Remember, 800 miles away. They make a long journey, and they visit the capital city of Persia. And Nehemiah hears that some Jews from Jerusalem are in town, and so he wants to meet with them. These are his people. And so he goes, and he meets with them. And the first question he asks is, how's the city of Jerusalem? How's it doing? Because he knows that Jerusalem has been in ruins for years, but now that some of the Jews have gone back to their homeland, well, maybe things are getting better. So how's Jerusalem? How's the state of the city? And listen to what the guys from Jerusalem tell Nehemiah. Nehemiah writes, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, Jerusalem is still broken. Jerusalem is still a mess. Jerusalem is still in ruins. And I want you to pay careful attention to how Nehemiah responds. Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah weeps, he cries, because he knew God's heart was broken. Jerusalem had been in this state for years. This wasn't new information. But his heart was broken because Nehemiah knew God had bigger plans for Jerusalem. God had bigger plans for his people. He still wanted to use Jerusalem in his grand scheme to save the world. He still wanted to use his people to bring about the Messiah. He still had great plans for his people and for Jerusalem. And yet, Jerusalem is still 
in ruins. And Nehemiah, in this prayer that he offers God, quotes prophecy. He quotes some of the promises of God about Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. He says that God has already promised, if you, speaking to the people, will return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's a reference to Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah knows something. Nehemiah knows that no matter how scattered, how divided the nation of Israel may be right now, God has the power to bring them back together. No matter how, how broken Jerusalem may be, God has the power to heal it and restore it and make it whole again. But in order for that to happen, the people had to turn to him. The people had to own their brokenness and give it to him and start doing life his way. And that doesn't seem to be happening. Instead, the people had just settled for their brokenness as normal. And Nehemiah grieved because he sensed that God wanted to do more among his people than what the people wanted him to do. And so Nehemiah sat down and wept. And let me just ask you, does your heart ever break for the things that break God's heart? I mean, when you see pain and suffering in this world, when you see the consequences of sin and the curse of sin affect people's lives in this world, does your heart ever break at the same things that break God's heart? I've been studying the book of Nehemiah a lot here recently. And when I got to that verse where it says that Nehemiah sat down and wept, it hit me hard. Because if I'm being transparent with you right now, I can identify with Nehemiah. Over the past year, the past several months, I've had many moments where I've sat down and cried. And I've cried because the state of our culture and the state of our nation. I've cried because of what this pandemic has done to us. And you might be thinking, well, Chad, isn't crying a sign of, sign of weakness? That's what some people think. I don't think so. I mean, Nehemiah was a great man of God. He cried. The apostle Paul wrote half our New Testament. He cried. Even Jesus himself wept, right? He cried. I think I'm in pretty good company. Jesus says that blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I think Jesus says that because he knows that when we mourn, when we grieve because of what breaks God's heart, we are close to God's heart in that moment. And when I've looked around at our culture and our country and our world over the past several months, and I've seen all the pain that this pandemic has caused, I've, I've mourned. I've grieved because of the people have gotten sick. I've grieved because of the death numbers that we hear reported all the time. I've grieved for people who have lost jobs. I've grieved because of the state of our economy. I've grieved because I've heard of homes being torn apart, homes being broken and marriages falling apart. I've heard of people whose mental health isn't good because of this pandemic. And then this summer when we heard about all the racial tension and injustice that was going on, that broke my heart as well. Because I knew that God wanted something better for us than that. 
And it was sad to hear about injustice and sad to hear about all the racial tension that unfortunately exists in our culture today. And I remember crying over that. I've cried because of some of the posts that I've seen on social media. Even people who profess to be Christians who have just expressed such hateful things and unchristlike things. I've cried when I've heard about friends who have betrayed friends and when I hear about children who have rebelled. And as I see the morals of our country just getting further and further away from what God wants. On more than one occasion, I've sat down and cried. And this week, I sat at my desk as I was writing this message and cried. Because as I heard and watched what was taking place in our country, I just kept thinking, God wants something better for us. I cried and I mourned because of the brokenness that exists in our world. Our world is an extremely broken place, but here's the thing, it doesn't have to be. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, he says, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. In other words, Jesus says, I want to heal them. I want to restore them. I want to rebuild their lives. I want to pick up the broken pieces of their lives. I want to make them whole again, but they won't listen to me. They've shut their eyes. They've turned their hearts against me. They're ignoring what's broken in their lives. Remember what I said earlier. The longer I ignore my brokenness, the more desensitized I become to it. And I don't think anybody listening to this message, whether you're in person or online right now, I don't think anybody would deny that our culture, our world is broken. But here's the thing, that didn't start in 2020. (laughs) We were broken long before that. 2020 just exposed it in a way that has hit most of us pretty hard. We've been broken for a long time. And so when I stand up here and I say, hey, our lives are broken because of sin, and hey, our culture is broken, our world is broken, that's not new information. You guys have heard that before. And that's why I think we can relate to the book of Nehemiah. Because when Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem was in shambles, that it was still in ruins, that wasn't new information. That had been the state of Jerusalem for 141 years. And Nehemiah could have very easily said, oh, well, that's the way it's always going to be. Or he could have said, God, I just want you to fix this. God, just do some miracle and restore the city. He could have done that. Or he could have said, well, I hope somebody else fixes it. I hope somebody else jumps in and corrects the problem. I mean, Nehemiah lived 800 miles away, and he was living a pretty good life. He's the best friend and the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He could have just said, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing right here. My life is good. But he didn't. In this moment, 
he was awakened to the pain of God, to God's pain. And he realized that maybe, just maybe, he wasn't cupbearer to the king of Persia by accident. That maybe, just maybe, God had been working behind the scenes this whole time to put him in that position at that time to make a difference in the world for the sake of God's name. And so Nehemiah says, I'm not going to ignore the situation anymore, but God, I want to turn this situation over to you, and whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. Because I believe, Nehemiah says, I believe you can use me to make a difference. And here's the thing. The same is true for us today. Listen again to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you, he's speaking to us, you and me. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus, you are the light of the world. Jesus acknowledges, yes, this world is a dark place to live. There's darkness everywhere. But you are the light that the world needs because you have my light within you. We're here to shine the light of Jesus. And what that means is we don't ignore the darkness. We don't avoid it. We don't shy away from it. We don't act like it. We don't mimic it. No, we offer an alternative to it. In a world that is full of hate, we unleash God's love. In a world that is chaotic and unstable, we are the peacemakers. In a world that chases after meaningless things, we show them what it means to have purpose and hope eternally in Christ Jesus. In a world that runs wild, we are those who keep in step with God's Spirit. We live by the fruit of the Spirit. In a world that is overwhelmed with brokenness, in a broken world, we show people Jesus. Because Jesus is the only hope for this world. No one else can heal the world. No one else can rebuild our lives. Jesus and Jesus alone is our answer. And here's the thing. There's no brokenness the blood of Jesus can't heal. As bad as things may seem at times, there is no brokenness the blood of Jesus can't heal. Josh Ross is a minister in Memphis, Tennessee. I got a chance to be on a Zoom call with him a few months ago. And he tells a story about the day that his adult sister, she was 31 years old, died in ICU. She contracted strep throat, and the strep apparently went into her bloodstream. It's a rare thing, but it happened. She was in the ICU for 18 days of their local hospital, and she died, 31 years old. And he says that as they were walking out of the ICU after his sister had died, his parents, who are godly people, but they were shaken in that moment, and his mom turned to his dad and said, Honey, remind me what we believe. His dad turned to his mom and said, the tomb is still empty. No matter what, on our darkest day, 
the tomb is still empty because we follow the one who defeated death. We follow the one who brought life from death, who brings light out of the darkness. And if he can defeat death and bring life to our world, then he can restore any brokenness we experience or face. He is the hope of the world. And if you really do believe the tomb is still empty, which I do, we got to start living like it. And we got to let the world know that he walked out of that tomb for them, just like he did for us. I had a conversation with a minister friend of mine this past week. And he told me, he was joking, but he said, you know, Chad, I kind of wish that I was the senior minister of a church in a simpler time. <laughs> and I get why he said that. I mean, when I was in Bible college and seminary, there wasn't a pandemic class or anything like that. I mean, they didn't teach us what to do. And no one was prepared for 2020 or what we're facing now in 2021 for that matter. And I know why he said that. And I've probably felt that way at times. But standing here today, I disagree with that. And I think he would say he does too. Because I believe that we are here for such a time as this. I believe the world needs Jesus now more than ever. And what that means is they need the church more than ever. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. And we're here, I believe, that this isn't an accident that you and I are in this room today or that you're watching online right now. I believe we are here because God wants us here in this moment. And there is a calling on our lives to shine the light of Jesus. And I believe that if we turn our lives over to him, he can use the church today in a way like maybe he never has before. That's what he did for Nehemiah. Nehemiah realized that he was in a unique position and it wasn't an accident and that maybe God could use him in that position to change the world, to make a difference. And I want you to notice something. When Nehemiah prays to God, Nehemiah didn't pray for God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Instead, he prayed for he himself to have an opportunity given by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I think way too often in our prayers, we just pray, God, do a miracle. God, just fix this for us. And maybe instead of just praying for God's miracles, we should also pray for God-given opportunities. There's nothing wrong with praying for a miracle, but maybe instead of us waiting on God, maybe God's waiting on us to use us in order to do what he wants to do. And so, yeah, keep praying for miracles, but also pray for God-given opportunities where he can use us to do what he wants to do. See, way too often... We're waiting on God to do something, and God's waiting to do something through us. So notice what Nehemiah says in his prayer in verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Did you catch what he says here? Give your servant success. Let me ask. Have you ever prayed, oh God, give me success in what I'm getting ready to do? You ever prayed that? If not, why not? Because what's the alternative? God help me fail? I mean, what's the alternative? Let me, let me just tell you, if you feel uncomfortable praying, God, give me success in what I'm getting ready to do, then you need to do something else. If you feel uncomfortable praying, God, fulfill my dreams, you need to dream bigger, better dreams. God-shaped dreams. 
Because if your heart is truly in line with God's heart, what you're going to be praying for is for his will to be done. And that's why Nehemiah was able to pray what he prayed. Because if you look at the content of his prayer, look at what he prays. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you uh, day and night for your servants. The people of Israel. Now pause right there. Notice what Nehemiah does as he starts off this prayer. He acknowledges who God is and he acknowledges who he is. God, you are the almighty. You are the one in control. You are the only sovereign. And I am just your servant. He acknowledges that he serves God's agenda. And then after he says that, look at what he says. He says, I've conf- I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. The next thing that Nehemiah does is, hey, God, I'm your servant, and I want to acknowledge right now my own brokenness. I want to acknowledge that I've messed up. I want to acknowledge I haven't been focused on what I needed to be focused on. I have sinned. I have messed up. And God, I repent before you today. But notice Nehemiah didn't just repent for his own sins. He also repented for the sins of the entire nation. You might think, well, why did he repent for the sins of the entire nation? Because that's leadership. He owned the brokenness of his people and said, it's got to start somewhere. And I'm willing for it to start with me, this movement of repentance. And then he goes on to say, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And we looked at this a second ago. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah concludes his prayer by standing on the promises of God. And so let me just ask you, Are you willing to realign your dreams with God's plans? Because that's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah says, God, I've been focused on the wrong stuff. God, I've been focused on me. God, I've sinned. I've messed up. God, my plans have not been in line with your plans. And so from today on, that changes. And let me ask you, are you willing to realign your dreams to fit with God's plans? Because if you are willing to do that, I believe God's ready to do something incredible, amazing, awesome through us, through you and me. Every year at Christmas time, we have a Christmas Eve service where we have a candlelight part of the service. This past Christmas, I used this very candle if you were here. This was the first candle that was lit and then we lit other candles as well. We lit up the room. It's always an awesome moment. I love our candlelight service. But one thing that I've realized is oftentimes I enjoy that moment together. And then after it's done, we blow our candles out. And then I go on and I do what I want to do. We celebrate Christmas the way we want to. This past Christmas, after our Christmas Eve services were done, I went home to my family, and I brought the candle that I used that night with me, and I lit it before them, and I talked about how Jesus came to be the light of the world, and I explained what that meant, and we celebrated that, and then we went to bed. The next morning, the kids woke up, and they opened their gifts and had all that fun stuff, you know, did all that fun stuff. 
But this candle was still setting on our kitchen counter. And Alex, my seven-year-old, he walked over to it and he grabbed the lighter. And normally I wouldn't want him to play with the lighter, but I wanted to see what he was going to do. And he lit the candle, and I'll never forget what he did. After he lit the candle, he said, keep shining, Jesus. I think that should be our prayer today. Yeah, Christmas may be over, and we may not be having a candlelight service today, but we need to be praying more than ever. Keep shining, Jesus. Today, when you leave, you're going to get a candle, a little candle like this. We've got one for every family. And I want you to take this candle with you, and I want to challenge our church to do something throughout the remainder of this series. Remember, the series is about 52 days, give or take a few days. And what I want you to do is I want you to let this candle be a reminder that we need to pray. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, which was miraculous in and of itself, but before he ever went to the king and asked permission to rebuild the walls, he prayed for four months. I think we need to pray now more than ever. And on this candle, there's a verse that we printed that says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, John 1, 5. Guys, the darkness may seem great around us, but Jesus' light always penetrates the darkness. So this is what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you at six o'clock every single night for the remainder of this series that your family gets together and lights this candle for a few minutes and prays for Jesus' light to keep shining and for God to open up an opportunity for Jesus' light to shine through you. Why did I say six o'clock? Because chapter six in the book of Nehemiah is when the wall was rebuilt. And here's the thing, at the beginning of the, of the chapter, chapter six, Nehemiah feels the pressure and the people are discouraged and that's when Nehemiah prays, oh God, strengthen my hands. And by the end of the chapter, the wall is rebuilt in 52 days. So at six o'clock every night, I want you to pray as a family. If you're new here and you think this is weird, you don't have to do it, that's fine. And if you can't pray at six o'clock, do it another time, that's fine. But know that if you do light this candle at six o'clock and pray as a family, that you've got other church family members who are doing it at the exact same time. Let's do this for the next several weeks together. And let's pray that God uses us to shine the light of his son. Because we're living in a dark, dark world. But the darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus. Let's pray for Jesus to keep shining. Pray for God to give you an opportunity to live out his dreams for your life. Because I believe if we have the heart of Nehemiah, God will give us an opportunity to do something incredible, to do something great for him. And we will show the world that the light is greater than the darkness. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this moment we've had today to open up your word. I thank you for the example of Nehemiah. God, I just pray that we can learn from his example and how it speaks to us today. God, I don't think we should be afraid, but I think we should... We should take our calling to be the light of the world more serious than we ever have before. 
So Father, I just pray that as a church, as we go to you in prayer over the next several weeks, that you would open up opportunities for us to shine the light of Jesus. And Father, it is my prayer today that you give this church success. That you empower us to shine light like we never have before. And may we show the world that what they need more than anything else is Jesus. That he can heal any brokenness. I lift this prayer up in the name of our King, Jesus Christ, who is on the throne. Amen.